every culture does it a little bit differently, but uh, all have uh, one thing in common. Whenever we communicate in written form, as in a letter, we always like to identify who we are, and we always like to say who we're sending our letter to, and uh, usually we want to say something, um, you know, by way of greeting or salutation that uh, is kind of like an opening line. It's kind of like in verbal conversation when you say, hi, how are you? Uh, we say that in English, and every other language has its uh, similar kinds of ways. And, you know, it's just like a way of saying, uh, glad to see you. Well, Paul was no different in the letters of the Colossians. Letters of that time were written very much like that. They, right in the very first opening sentences, included the person they were from, and they included the group or the person that it was going to be written to. But Paul takes the opportunity in his greeting, writing by divine inspiration, to say some very special things. It's not just, hi, how are you? But it's a greeting that makes a declaration and a statement and kind of sets the tone of his letter because it's coming uh, from the inspiration and the authority of the Holy Spirit. If you look with me in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul begins his letter to the Colossians in, in just this way. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, as we dive into our study of the book of Colossians, this letter that Paul has written to a church he's never actually personally been to, but he's heard some things about them and he's very concerned, and uh, he's actually going to write a letter that hopes to bring some correction. And at the outset, uh, I just want to look at some of the things he says in these opening verses because they have significance for us. First of all, you notice how Paul identifies himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, there's a reason why Paul says this here, but I want us to just think about it for a moment in general terms. You know, in, in our contemporary culture in the church today, we've become pretty laissez-faire, kind of uh, whatever goes, we've dropped a lot of formality, we've kind of gotten easy going, and, uh, and those of you that know me, and I've been this way practically my whole life, uh, that I've been a pastor, which is practically my whole life, um, I, you know, I like to be called Paul. That's my preference. Just call me Paul. I am a pastor, I know that, uh, and uh, hopefully you know that, and we just kind of uh, recognize that in the background, but I just, I just like to be, you know, one of the folk. That's just kind of my attitude. Uh, but sometimes we do that to, to our detriment, or we uh, fail to, to realize the implications that go with a particular office or a particular calling. Uh, I think the term pastor is very appropriate. One of the words that I never use of myself is reverend. Well, I don't 
never use it. I do use it occasionally when I go to hospitals and jails. Uh, I usually play the reverend card because they understand that kind of terminology and it opens doors that I need to walk through in my role as a pastor. So that's something that, that people can identify with. But um, that's a term that I don't particularly care for because it has implications that I'm not sure are scriptural, although it recognizes ordination. But Paul, in, in his letter, is making connection with who he is in terms of Jesus Christ and in terms of the church. And he is doing it for a reason, which is to establish appropriate spiritual credentials and to establish some credibility, especially uh, to a church that knows him and knows of him, but does not know him personally. And the reason that I'm bringing this out this morning uh, is because we're going to see as we get into this a little bit, that while God has some special offices to which He calls people, the choice of that, I'm not highlighting this to say, okay, everybody uh, do the little bow when you go out this morning, you know. I'm not calling this attention to highlight my role, but to say, God could have a calling and a plan for you. God could be wanting to tap you on the shoulder and set you apart for a specific work. Because the calling of God is by His sovereign choice. It's not based on our choice, nor is it based on our dreams or hopes or aspirations. Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And I can assure you that every person who is genuinely called by God to fulfill an office and a role to the church in this capacity is someone who lives out their lives with a little bit of a mystery. And that mystery always is, why did God pick me? Because I know on the inside uh, that, that I have the same struggles you do, and uh, I face the same kinds of issues, and I wrestle with God over things, and uh, I have to constantly submit to the Holy Spirit uh, to have victory over sin. It's just the reality of the Christian life and the spiritual walk that, uh, that the walk is the same. And yet, God, in His sovereignty, sometimes walking along the way, puts His hand on individuals and says, I want you to leave your nets, to leave your boats, to leave your tax tables, to leave your job, whatever it may be. I want you to lay those things down, put down your tools... And I want you to follow me in a call and a commitment to serve the body of Christ. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but uh, I've given you the reference in your outline. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, Paul writes to the Ephesian church that God has given some in the church, first apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, then pastors, 
and teachers or pastor teachers, either uh, that's either four or five different offices, depending on whether you consider the last one a, a hyphenated pastor teacher role or whether it's two different people. And a lot of people today want to put that list in with the list of spiritual gifts. And they want to say that um, among the spiritual gifts are gifts of apostleship or the missional role or gifts of pastoring and so on and so forth. And one of the things that confuses it a little bit by admission is that there is a gift of prophecy and there is a gift of teaching. But there is no spiritual gift of pastoring. There's no spiritual gift of evangelism. And there's no spiritual gift of apostling. But, the, but there are some commonalities in the two. But the reason that we can tell the difference between spiritual gifts and these offices is by asking some simple questions. Who is the giver? Who is the recipient? And what is the nature of the gift? So let's explore that just for a moment. And, and I'm making a point because I want you to hang in there with me. You may be the next one that God taps on the shoulder. Okay? Spiritual gifts are given by who? Who gives spiritual gifts? A little feedback. Okay, God. Okay, I know God. Okay, but God is in three persons. So which person of the triune God gives spiritual gifts? Holy Spirit. Okay, there's a little clue in there. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. To whom does He give them? Who gets the gifts? Who? You do. People do. Individuals do. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to whomever He wishes according to His will. And what is the nature of those gifts? Let's think about a few of them. Helping, serving, teaching, prophesying, administration, leadership, healing. What's the nature of those gifts? What, what are they kind of like? The service to the church and its abilities, isn't it? Isn't it ability or, or, or um, a, uh, an aptitude? It's not a natural aptitude. It's a supernatural ability that the Holy Spirit gives to individuals for the purpose of ministering to the body of Christ one to another. And we need each other. And God has given every person gifts by His Spirit to minister to one another. But let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and ask the same set of questions. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, who is the giver? Which member of the Trinity is the giver in Ephesians 4? Look again. Jesus Christ is the giver. Okay? Who is the recipient? Who gets the gift? Look closely. The body of Christ, the whole church. And what is the nature of the gift? First apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, then pastors, then teachers. Are these aptitudes or are these people? They're people, aren't they? Apostles, prophets, evangelists. 
pastors, teachers, they're people. Christ gives people to His body. You see the difference? And it's kind of important to recognize that. Because there's, there's a significance that Paul is bringing out when in the course of time and events of walking with Christ, he taps someone on the shoulder, man or woman, young or old, he taps him on the shoulder and says, I want you to put down your nets and to put down your tools and I want you to serve my body as this office. You're going to be an apostle. You're going to be a prophet. You're going to be a pastor, an evangelist, a teacher. And we need to recognize that when Christ makes that choice, if we are His faithful follower, we must surrender our other agendas to His greater purpose and accept that call. And with that call comes spiritual authority. Now, I want to say just a word about that, because uh, one of my former superintendents, uh, John Fogel, used to always uh, say to the pastors in the district, regarding the Constitution, you have no power. You have no power in the church. That is constituted power. And that's absolutely true. Local church pastors and the Christian Missionary Alliance are under the authority of the elected governance authority of the church, which we call our church leadership team. And the pastor can't do whatever he pleases. He is under the authority of that leadership team constitutionally. In fact, there's a whole series of of, of um, shared, you know, um, shared kind of influence and, and authority within that checks and balances is the word I'm looking for, that I can't act in many official, in any official capacity without the consent and authority given by the leadership team. But he said, you all have influence and you have spiritual authority. The power of the office that Christ gives is the power of prayer. And there is spiritual authority wrapped up in that. And when Paul opens this letter by saying, I am an apostle called by God. He is saying a number of things to them. I have an official ministry and role to the body of Christ that I did not choose, but God chose me and called me and anointed me, and as a consequence, I have some spiritual authority in this matter, and I'm writing to you out of my office. 
Now, the interesting thing is, is that in the letter to the Colossians, he says, and Timothy, our brother. You see that? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy was with Paul when he wrote this letter. Timothy was with Paul when he wrote some other letters. Timothy was a young man who heard the gospel, responded affirmatively to the gospel, embraced the cause of Christ, and uh, began to travel with Paul. And Paul was discipling and investing his life in Timothy. Somewhere along the road, and I tried to find a good chronology of all the letters of Paul, and what I found was confusion. <laughs> I, I read different commentators, and I tried to put these letters in sequence, and uh, everybody has a little different slant on, on who did what when. And so it's kind of difficult to pinpoint it. But it's interesting to me that Paul later in his life writes to Timothy, this is future from the Colossian letter. It's, it's maybe ten years future. And he writes to Timothy who is now in Ephesus as his emissary. Paul has sent him to Ephesus. And he says, Timothy, don't be afraid and timid. Remember, remember the gift that was given you when we laid hands on you and prayed for you and set you apart. Remember that. And apparently what Paul is referring to is a point in the journey when Timothy recognized that God had tapped him on the shoulder and said, I want you to serve me in this capacity. And when we read the Thessalonian letters, we get some insight. Because Paul to the Thessalonians, Timothy and Silvanus are both with him at this time. And when Paul writes that letter... In chapter 2, he says, we, he starts out the letter, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and so forth. But then in chapter 2, he says, we did not exercise our authority as we had the right to do as apostles of Jesus Christ. We as apostles. And it is clear to me that in the letter to the Thessalonians, Timothy is now an apostle. He has received that calling and anointing from God. Now, some people get all excited about that because they want to say, well, there's only 12 apostles and there aren't any more. And then you have to deal with Matthias and how did Paul get in there? And people go through all kinds of gyrations with that. I, I have a... I have my paper back there that I wrote uh, for kind of a senior thesis. I won't bore you with all the details. It's a lengthy paper. But I wrote on the whole question of the office of apostle in the early church and proved from the Scripture that there are at least 16 people in the New Testament who are called apostles, and one of them, interestingly enough, is a woman in Romans. But there are 16 people who are called apostles by the term. And so as you examine the Scriptures, you find that that office was expanded. The twelve had a unique role as the founders of the church, 
and personal witnesses of the person of Jesus Christ. But Paul and Silvanus and Timothy and, and Apollos and uh, Junia and Janus and others like that that are mentioned as apostles were founders of churches. And we find that the apostolic office is primarily the planting role of church establishment. Prophets have another role. Evangelists have another role. And pastors and teachers have another role. And so somewhere along the journey, a transition was made in Timothy's life as he sensed God's claim upon him. Why am I belaboring this point? Because, friends, if you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, there can come a point in your life, and who knows when it will be, that God puts His hand upon you and says, now I want you to lay aside your typical vocation, and I want you to devote yourself completely to my work in my church. Now, That does not mean that those people did not engage in outside work to help from time to time. Paul made tents. You all know that. Uh, Others have done other things. Sometimes uh, it's important to, in order to finance uh, something. We have missionaries that go to limited access countries and they work as engineers or they work as uh, teachers or something else in order to gain access to that uh, closed country. But they know in their heart, heart, heart of hearts that their number one primary singular calling of God is to go as a missionary, an apostle, to go as an evangelist, to go as a pastor teacher. They know that. And that is the claim of God upon their life as he has given them to the church. Are you open To that claim of God, are you willing at any time that he says to submit to that specific calling that comes with it great responsibility, spiritual authority, and a sense of awe before God? You know, I'm struck by Paul's life because... On the one hand, he tells us, the concern of all the churches is always on me. My burden is always for them. I'm praying for them. Sometimes he writes and he says, I feel like I'm in childbirth again. As he's given birth to a church, they've gone off the wire. I feel like I'm in childbirth again. I'm in labor pains all over that that you not be led astray. My burden is for you. My heart is for you. And yet the only thing he could do, as my friend John Fogel would say, is write a letter of encouragement and appeal. Because he had no physical authority to make anybody do anything. But he had spiritual authority to pray and to influence. And he had a burden upon his heart. And he wants the Colossians to know, I'm not writing you. As just anyone. I'm writing you as an apostle. God has given me to the church for a reason. And you're in trouble 
And I want you to know who I am. Because I'm writing to bring some correction. Are you open to that claim upon your life? Having said that, Paul then says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ who are at Colossae. This morning, on my way into church, I stopped uh, across the street to get my sausage biscuit and coffee and um, pulled up to the pay window. And the young lady there uh, looked like she all night or else uh, just gotten to work and was trying to get her eyes open. And so I said, good morning, how are you today? And she looked startled like, Oh, that's my line. <laughs> a little tired. How are you? Good comeback. And I said, well, I'm probably just about the same. And, and then she said, you're all stuff. Are you going to Mass? And I said, and before I could answer, she said, is there a 6.30 Mass around here? An 8 o'clock service. And uh, I like to get there a little early. But it's interesting to me that her immediate assumption when she saw me dressed for church was that I was going to Mass. Now, the reason she drew that conclusion is because we live in McHenry, where 75% of the people who go to a religious establishment go to Mass. And only 5% of the people go to church or some other kind of service. Now, I bring that out because we also live in an area where the word saint is greatly misunderstood. In the other church, saints have to be canonized. That doesn't mean you line them up and shoot them with cannons. But it means that at some point in time, the, the archbishops and the, and the head honchos of the church, uh, I, that's probably sacrilege, I don't know, but anyway, they get together and they decide who gets to be a saint. If they have done amazing things, if their life has had miraculous impact, if they have uh, served in some profound way. And you may not know this, but one of the benefits of being a saint uh, when you are canonized is that you instantly get out of purgatory. And you can go right into the presence of God. And so you can just dispense with the rest of purgatory. And you can go to the presence of God. And now you're available for the rest of the people muddling through life to call out to you for help. You can call on your saint and and get some help from them because they're now in a position uh, to help you. And as a consequence of that, many people have the idea that saints are these very high and lofty people that have been canonized by the church and that everybody else is just an ordinary, uh, well, just an ordinary person. But the New Testament Scriptures have a very different perspective. First of all, there is no purgatory to get out of, so there's no benefit. It's God. God makes that determination. And his determination is that every single 
persons a saint. Now, perhaps it would help us if we understood really means a consecrated one or one set apart, a whole we are called out unto God. We belong to <laughs> the Holy Spirit is now residing in us, which is His temple, and we have been sanctified or do you not recognize you have not been redeemed with those cheap trinkets made out of gold and silver? But you have been redeemed with the precious and imperishable blood of Jesus that has been shed for you. So act like you are. Be holy behavior as God has called you. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. You have been bought with a price. And we need to, to, to recognize that as born-again children of God, we are set apart unto Him and for His use. You've heard me say many times that in the Old Testament, when the vessels, the, the tongs and the, the lavers and whatever were set apart for the tabernacle use, they were sprinkled with the blood and sanctified, and they could never ever be used again for ordinary purposes. They were sacred unto the Lord, even though they were simply instruments. But the temple, remember, is a type of who we are. And when we are sprinkled with the blood and cleansed from our sin and set apart to God, we belong to Him and we are not available any longer for just ordinary stuff. We are the consecrated of the Lord. We are holy ones. Not because we necessarily act that way. I hope we do. But because we have been made that way by God. Educators tell us in early childhood education that You have to choose your words carefully in training children. Parents and teachers have to be mindful. If you continue to say to a child, boy, that's dumb, you're so stupid. In fact, someone came out after the 8 o'clock service and said, when I was growing up, uh, my father always said to me, you're crazy. And as I predicted in, in the explanation, He said, and I began to believe and fear that I was. Because if you continue to project an image to a child that he's dumb or stupid or lacks coordination or just a D student, eventually they will simply live up to your expectations in a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy. But if you instead affirm them, find those things they do well and affirm them and bless them. You know, wow, you really color well. I love your choice of colors. You have real talent here. And, and you continue to reinforce the positive and affirm that. 
they develop an image of themselves that is more wholesome. Friends, God calls us saints. It should impact our view of ourselves. It should have an impact on our thinking. We should wake up in the morning and realize, I belong to God. I have been bought with the blood of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is living in my body. I am His child. And live out your day with that awareness. Because that is what you are. We are saints of the living God. And it ought to impact our lives as to the significance of that. It is not reserved for the special few. It is a designation that is given to every born-again person. And we should recognize how wonderful and unique and privileged we are to be the people of God. The holy ones that we have been called to be. But Paul adds a phrase to the Colossians. He says, to the saints and faithful. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones did an interesting thing with this in his sermon on these verses. He, he emphasized the fact that saints are faithful because they've been born again and they've been transformed. And if you're not faithful, you're not a saint. I thought maybe that was taking it a little too far because we all know that there are believers who get sidetracked. They get caught up in the affairs of the world. They get their attention diverted. They struggle with issues. We, we know that. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was trying to emphasize the fact that uh, being born again has a transformational aspect to it, and it should, and it does. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. But Douglas Moo and J.B. Lightfoot took a look at this and said, we think Paul is, is setting up the distinction as he begins to address the problem. It starts to come out right away in the next few verses that not everyone in Ephesus, I mean in Colossae, is faithful. Some have turned aside. Some have bought the lies of false teachers and they have been diverted. The cares of the world have pulled their attention. And so they think that Paul is, is singling out that there could be a difference. Regardless of who is right or wrong, this much I can tell you for sure. God makes you a saint. He is the one who does that work in your life by His Holy Spirit. But faithfulness is a choice you make. I'm not suggesting for a moment that you have to work to be faithful. If you choose to follow Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will empower you with His strength and might to follow that choice. 
But it is a choice you must make. You have to fix your eyes on Jesus. You have to focus upon Him. You have to determine that you are going to follow Him. And and when you say, yes, Lord, I will follow you, the Holy Spirit will empower and strengthen and enable you, but this is your responsibility. And so, as Paul opens the letter and begins to defend the faith and the person of Jesus Christ bringing correction, he addresses his letter to the saints and the faithful, the ones who are still hanging in there, the ones who are still following, the ones who have not been polluted and distracted. And the word Adelphoi, and the reason that's the reason I put it in the outline, the word Adelphoi, brothers in the uh, Greek language of the time, is in the generic sense. He doesn't mean just the guys. It's brothers and sisters. And so the obvious question for us then is, are we also faithful? If you're born again, you are a saint. Whether you always act that way or not, you are. You belong to Him. You've been set apart for His purpose. But are you faithful? Have you fixed your eyes on Him? Are you following Him with all of your heart? And to come back around to where I started out, are you open and available? Please don't misunderstand I do not want to disparage any distinction between those who are called to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers as if they were higher class. They are not. They have just been called by God in His sovereign choice. Everyone who has not been specifically called that way is still a called person in the sense that you have been placed in a unique place in life, a a position, an opportunity to bear the light and to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. But are you always open and available to Him as the Lord of your life to do whatever He asks, whenever He asks it? Are you willing for Him to make dramatic changes in your life if He chooses to do so? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful ones at Colossae, grace and peace to you. Father, I pray that you would give us insight into your word this morning and that you would probe our hearts. Perhaps we've had a poor spiritual self-image We need the correction this morning that the Word of God brings to remind us that we are chosen, called, holy ones unto the Lord. And because of that, we don't have a right to do anything we please with our lives and our bodies. We belong to you. May we be found faithful and obedient to your will and purposes. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.